Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist, director of education for the Mindset Performance Institute, and teaching two classes coming up again this quarter. Cool. What are you teaching? Uh, teaching kinesiology 101 and advanced exercise programming. So oh, advanced pretty programming. Fun. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I think a lot of people are hungry for that. Like, even when I teach uh, strength conditioning, the students want to immediately jump into advanced programming. You oh, know? Yeah. And I'm like, listen, guys, according to the strength conditioning textbook itself, and wisely so, we need to consider, like, structure and function of the body first i mean you can't set up some of these systems the nervous system comes into play you know different body parts and antagonists and agonists and this and that and you don't just jump into programming so hopefully our listeners can appreciate that too because a lot of people they just want to jump to some type of advanced programming and i think that's almost one of the problems with a lot of these programs that float around the internet and some of them are they're soundly based in practical knowledge you know, five, three, one, and starting strength, and they're cool, but it's almost like wanting to play a piano concerto before you even understand how to read music or even what the keyboard is, you know, and... Yeah, and uh, I think a lot of my online clients initially are kind of sorely disappointed that, you know, for the vast majority of them, it's, you know, kind of old-school linear periodization for the first eight, of, you know, four to eight weeks just to you know, just to see how they respond. Most of them need a pretty big deload. And, but the nice part is after that, it's like, I have a pretty good idea of how much, you know, volume you can handle and what you like, what you don't like. And, and then we can change it up and get a little bit fancier. But like you said, it's, there's no need usually to do the super uber fancy stuff to begin with. It's just more complicated. And then you have to worry about them actually completing the program. And then you just get more questions than anything else. And at the end of it, you're like, okay, so what did I learn to do, you know, the next set of your programming? And it just gets to be way too complicated to start. Yeah. That's not needed. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we talk quite a bit of programming and whatnot here on the show, but yeah, hopefully listeners, our listeners are savvy enough that they get that, that right. There's a lot behind this, the anatomy, the physiology and the endocrinology and the neurology and holy guacamole. It's almost a systems approach before you can even get to the programming. And unfortunately, I think the magazines and a lot of the websites, they just jump to the programming. But even a beginner needs some plan. So I, I can Yeah, and that's that. why I've been really hesitant to even write any plans for any you know magazine or mm. online articles or anything mm. like that because it's so specific to you know that individual you're dealing with. It's the same thing with nutrition for yeah, years. Yeah, the guys at, at T Nation would be like, Lonnie, write us a program. The closest I, I think I ever got was that like 100 workouts to Ripped City or something. Just It was really just more of a, a calorie counting sort of energy balance article because I was mm-hmm. always so loath to do nutrition plans too because just like with the training, you don't just set someone on a plan. What about all the in, the baseline assessments that you need? You know, it's so individual. Like when you go to a doctor – 
he doesn't say here's your here's your plan leave they yeah. he takes your blood pressure <laughs> he gets you know he does a physical exam he, he does things you know to get some baseline information first for god's sake anyway yeah and those things will change as you go too so i always tell clients that you know this is a template you know this is a good starting place but you know if you have any pain doing an exercise or you just really really hate one exercise or your form doesn't feel right i mean it's obviously changes and tweaks and stuff you can make where i know some coaches are just like well just just shut up and do it it's like well there's you know a time and a place for that but usually they're giving you feedback that something's not right so it's you know your job to try to see what's going on and change it if needed right you know in dietetics and uh in counseling too uh my wife's going to join us in the second half of the show everybody for uh our topic but uh it that's you know, per client or per patient, you always label it that in the note because, you know, let's face it, it's subjective, but like, like you're saying, it matters. That's feedback that's coming for a reason, even if it is per patient. So, oh, and by the way, I know you've mentioned in the past about how some people tolerate strength versus volume better and this and that. And, uh, I was just talking to Nick. He's a former student of mine, um, from Minnesota. In fact, he's the one I put in touch with you. Oh, Uh, nice. Yeah. I did send him a reply. I haven't heard back yet, but um, yeah. But we are talking about volume as sort of the focus of bodybuilding type stuff. And he's been he's uh, working on his master's in XFIS. And there is a certain discussion that starts to come up about programming. Like, how heavy do I really need to go if I just want hypertrophy? You know, and can I do this with volume? And it's, it's a fun discussion with some of this programming stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's very interesting. I mean, what I typically do with most of those guys is, most of the programs are pretty volume intensive and then there's usually one or two days or maybe split where there is still some, you know, pretty good strength focus, right? Because that's, if you can get stronger, <clears throat> even if you're using, you know, 70, 80% of a load, then as your one rep max goes up, kind of that's not your main goal, you can then move sort of a higher quality volume, right? Yeah, so you can yeah. move more load and heavier weights and that kind of stuff. So you I think it just kind of allows for more progression over time, too. Right on. Okay, I'll tell you what. We're going to get to uh, one bit of news and one bit of uh, listener mail. Um, Before we get to our topic of the day in the second half of the show, the topic of the day is going to be healthy eating uh, versus contest prep, right? So there's a spectrum of what one might call clean eating. And Mike, I know you don't like that term, but <laughs> so there's this spectrum of clean eating. What does that mean? Uh, and how do we deal with this? Like some examples from the household. Uh, so anyway, let's first get to the news. Strength and muscle sport news. This first one is technology news. And as an engineer, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this or I shouldn't expect you to know all things, you know, mechanical <laughs> <Uh-oh>. and electrical. <laughs> Um, but there is a local physician here in town, and this is a very reputable physician's group. This is not, and again, no offense to the chiropractors who stick to their scope of practice and whatnot, but, you know, sometimes you'll get some really adventurous chiropractors or people who, uh, they have all kinds of little machines and gadgets in their office with claims behind them. And it makes me wonder, frankly, Mm -hmm. um, but this is a very legitimate group, uh, of physicians uh, and they are advertising this stuff called Vanquish, uh, mm. pa- pain-free fat reduction system. Let me just read through some. This is sort of an ad. This is from their actual family practice website. And like I said, these guys are not prone to being too far off on the 
you know, sometimes, and again, no offense to people who are naturopaths, but sometimes they get so adventurous, they want to believe some of this stuff works, and they lose a bit of the skepticism that I think you have to have, you know, but uh, it says scientifically proven, I don't like the term proven, and science doesn't really <laughs> prove anything, but uh, it says vanquish uh, has been scientifically shown to destroy fat cells, leading to fat reduction in targeted areas. It's a non-contact radio frequency device that delivers selective RF energy in a controlled fashion to uh, the deep tissue in a targeted area. The frequency is set to allow the device to target and destroy unwanted fat cells while leaving skin, muscle, and other healthy tissues unharmed. Hmm. It says it's painless. There's no pain or discomfort. Uh, and it says uh, it's able to target uh, fat collected, like, for example, in the abdominal area. And they have some pre- and post-treatment pictures here of both lean and really not lean people. Uh, it says patients can lose up to three inches with Vanquish with just four weekly treatments. Some may notice a difference uh, after a single treatment, but it takes a few weeks to see the full results. Thoughts? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know that much uh, <clears throat> about it. I know um, a physician, a buddy of mine who's in California, his business partner in the same practice was doing something very similar with either RF or cold, I think. I'm not sure which one it was, um, but kind of similar thing. I mean, he seemed to be pretty legitimate, and the guy I know he business partners with said he's you know pretty legitimate because you know, a lot of these things just seem like they're utter kind of quackery kind of stuff right um i know when i was in the medical device industry there's a lot of work with rf ablation for atrial fib and those things okay because mm -hmm. you can basically put a catheter into the atrium in essence what you're trying to do is scar over a bunch of the tissue so you're trying to contain these sort of stray electrical signals a little more complicated than that um but there's all sorts of stuff using different types of RF. There's catheters that cool the tissue, heat it. Um, so at least from a mechanistic standpoint, it makes sense that you can get specific RF frequencies to you know target different cell structures and that type of thing. Um, yeah, I don't know if you can do enough sort of volume you know work with that to see a difference. But yeah, I don't know. Interesting. It really begs the question to me. Uh, well, now that you've sort of educated me, like, first of all, my thought was, what is it that makes uh, an adipocyte, right, a fat cell receptive to a certain radio frequency uh, where they're vulnerable and the muscle tissue is not, you know, or yeah, the skin is not? You probably know. water content would be my guess um, or something similar of that, right? Because mm -hmm. some of the other stuff I've seen, if you can get specific cells to, you know, heat up and vibrate, they can basically destroy themselves in that specific manner there's different frequencies to target that there's different frequencies to target different depths so for example the research i did on my masters was actually in uh, millimeter wave exposure so super super high like gigahertz transmitters and those only penetrate just below the depth of the skin actually so they hit all the sympathetic nerve endings there and hurt like holy hell which is, causes people to move out of the way of the beam. So it's a, basically a way of crowd control. Uh, but like your microwave in your kitchen has a much lower frequency. So therefore, it's much more penetrating. So it penetrates the food, causes little water molecules to vibrate, and then therefore heats the food up from the inside. Mm -hmm. So you can get different, depending on the modality you use, 
you can get different types of frequencies to kind of target different things and even at different levels too. So my my thoughts are, as a physiologist, I'm thinking, so how much tissue necrosis, right? How much yeah. tissue destruction is going to be okay? Uh, I don't think it's really focal, like it, like a little wand. I think it's more like you go in for 45 minutes, and I think it kind of hits a broad area because otherwise there could You'd be dimpling. To. I mean, it could yeah. really go bad, you know. Um, you end up all sort of wavy and bumpy because you've got – pockets of fat cells destroyed i i don't know it, this is it's just kind of weird uh if it's true though and again if we if we focus to the fun side and get a little less skeptical man three inches after four weekly treatments and it, again it's um four weekly sessions that last 45 minutes apparently wow. i don't know um that's remarkable and again i'm super um skeptical about some of these before after gallery you know pictures but they show some stuff and there's a lean woman here and literally in the before picture you can't really make out the abs and afterwards you can make out you know two to four of her abs i mean there's a difference but it's not um it doesn't look like a big ugly lie difference you know so i don't know something to keep your eyes open for ears open for people vanquish uh, focused field radio frequency destroy destruction of fat cells. Hmm. So, yeah, and obviously we both know what would be interesting to see the long term effects there too, right? Because if you, uh, a friend of mine, she's a, a liposurgeon, does liposuction, different types of cosmetic procedures, and the two things after talking to her that were fascinating is that she can remove a ton of fat by doing liposuction, but your weight may not change that much. Right, because even though fat is is relatively dense, there's only a limited amount that they can remove. Um, but because you can get so specific with it, assuming you you do without destroying the other tissue, that you can see you know a lot lower inches and visual changes too. Even though your scale weight may not make a massive change, um, yeah, because yeah. it's so localized. And the other part that was interesting too is that it's. I don't know. There's a lot of art, I think, that still goes into those procedures, like you were saying. You know, what if you zap too much fat from one area, right? And you get this big indented area on one side, and the other yeah. side looks goofy, and stuff shifts, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, shift. Yeah, that'd be bad. That'd yeah. Be bad. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, as a physiologist, like systemically, I, I also think, like, is there enough tissue destruction? Like, are you going to see triglycerides skyrocket in their bloodstream you know like i almost want to do a series of blood draws for a couple of hours you know three four five hours afterwards and because of course a lot of listeners know about fat cells they're like little oil balloons you know they're just little containers i mean i know they're hormonally active and they're not just a gas tank but compared to the typical picture of a cell that we think of with the nucleus in the middle and the water and the little mitochondrian organelles floating around all that's pushed to the side, and there's this huge oil droplet. When you destroy that, you burst it like the oil balloon. Uh, <laughs> it makes you wonder, yeah, is all that going to flood into your bloodstream? Go somewhere. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, okay, listener question, and this one is mostly for you. Um, everyone, Phil isn't joining us today. Not only is it the 4th of July, which is, of course, a holiday here in the in the U.S., but he's also got a brand-new hip and a brand-new baby, so... <laughs> Can't expect, yeah, can't expect everything <laughs> from the man. Um, so here it is. Uh, it says deadlift grip issues due to accident. Um, 
Hi, Lonnie. Let me start off by saying uh, your guys is one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. I never miss a show, and I'm making my way through your entire archive because the material is just that rich. Thank you, and keep up the good work. A little background on me. I used to lift regularly in my younger days, uh, high school football, albeit not very well, and have in the last few years been introduced to fitness and become more and more interested in powerlifting. I'm making my way through the newbie gains that have increased my bench press from 175 to 255. Nice. Squat from 285 pound to 465 pound. Wow. 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 Uh, And my deadlift from 315 to five and a quarter. Oh, that's Uh, impressive. Yeah, all over the course of two years. Uh, Once I hit the dreaded plateau using programming such as 531 and starting strength. Oh, see, there we go. (laughs) Um, Perfect intro. (laughs) uh, I have since moved on to uh, Shaco, and I am currently in my third month and loving it. Now the issue. Due to a childhood accident, I was left with two-thirds of my middle finger on my right hand missing, as well as the tip of my ring finger. I never used lifting straps for the deadlift until I got above 455, as my right hand would just completely unravel. Uh, in your and the other guy's opinion professional opinion do you think it's possible to train my grip enough to where i won't need to use these straps i perform all other pulling activities with no straps and that includes weighted pull-ups but like i said above 450 or so uh in weight and it's just too much if you've got any ideas on what i could do as far as grip work is concerned to beef up my grip strength in my right hand please let me know as i'm starting to consider entering powerlifting meets Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, I think he's strong enough to do that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, and I feel like my performance will be significantly hindered by my grip strength in the deadlift. Uh, it says, it's been suggested to reach out to USAPL and other governing bodies to gain permission to use a lifting strap for my right hand. That's a good question, you mm-hmm. know, since you would need that, uh, if you need that. Uh, I want to lift it on my own. Uh, I've thought of possibly using a gripping device for training, but I've read that this mainly trains crushing strength and it's a little, little carryover to the actually holding a deadlift. Uh, I feel every other part of my body is able to pull the five and a quarter plus except my right hand grip. Any input is welcome. Thanks, Hamid. And on the right hand, what was it you said? Uh, ring finger and? Uh, Two thirds of my middle finger on my right hand oh. as well as the tip of my ring finger. Oh, okay. Ring finger tip. Oh, okay. So um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, first off, I mean, that's very impressive numbers, for especially for only, I mean, for two years. That's that's really, really good. Yeah. So, yeah, I would, yeah, definitely encourage the, the powerlifting meet for there. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what USAPL says. I mean, in general, they're very, very sticklers on rules, which, you know, I don't have any problem with. I just tell people, make sure you check everything before you go there. Um, I did a local meet, USAPL, several years ago, and... I had uh, Vibrams, which were found to be illegal, and I had a pair of um, just like spandex-type underwear, which were also illegal. So, <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> that was kind of my fault for not going through all the rules. But I ran home and got some and worked out all right. Um, I guess my first question for the deadlift grip is: it almost sounded like his right hand was palms down. Did he say if it was pronated or supinated? I don't recall any of that info. Yeah. He did give me a follow-up, though. He said, I don't know if it matters, but I'm about 5'10", 185. In oh, okay. So, yeah, those are really good for yeah. that height and oh, weight. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing I would look at. It, it 
I'm guessing, and it could be that if his right hand is down, right, that's going to be a much weaker grip than supinated, so palm up. Um, so if he's using a mixed grip, he may have to train flipping his grip a little bit because the right hand that's going to be up is going to be in a much stronger position than palm down. That's the first thing I would look at. Um, in my experience, I would agree that the, the kind of the crush, the gripper training that you see advertised all the time, I just really haven't seen much positive transfer with that. And it's very, very specific. So if you do like a grip contest or you really get into doing grippers, um, I get to train with uh, Adam Glass here for several years. I did a bunch of grip contests just so I could get better at grip. Um, and he's really good at doing all that stuff, competed in the Arnold Island a couple of years ago. Um, and in his experience, too, he hasn't seen that transfer very well. So usually I put that kind of last on the list. Um, the things that I would try that are a little bit different is um, palms kind of... So the two things I would do is palms down work and especially oversized work. So getting like an axle or just like a pair of fat grips. So fat grips will take the diameter of the bar from one inch to about two inches. And that makes it significantly more strain on that kind of supportive grip. And usually that transfers really well when you go back to a one inch bar. Mm. Um, so I hadn't done, I got an axle a couple of years ago and just started doing axle work for almost like a year. I don't even think I pulled any deadlifts that were non-axle. And I went back to just a normal deadlift and wow, it felt like this tiny little twig that you could break. <laughs> uh, so pretty big transfer with that. Um, another thing that works really well too, especially on him since his thumb and his index finger are still good, and that's where you'll generate a lot of grip strength, is doing like a simple two-hand pinch. So you can take um, two 25s, 35s, or 45s, put them together with the smooth side out, and then do just a one-hand or two-hand pinch. So you're just going to put your hand over it, kind of like a lobster, and then try to lift it that way. Yikes. So the thumb, yeah, the thumb is opposing the other fingers at that point. And in a lot of people, if you look at when the palm is down... The only thing that's opposing to their fingers is the thumb, right? So if your thumb starts to get pulled out, the bar will just unravel really yeah. easy. Um, so those are two things I would look at. And then if he is doing a lot of uh, right-hand up work, I actually do have people look at trying even uh, like dumbbell rows with their hands supinated, right? So their palm up. Um, you have to pull with the elbow. Don't try to do a bicep curl that way. Um, but that's another way just to get some more volume with the hand um, that's also up. So that's what I'd have him try. And that's awesome advice. I mean, those are a lot of things that make a lot of sense to me. I mean, Phil's such a deadlift master that maybe we'll, uh, we'll pick his yeah, brain next week yeah, as well. Um, yeah, and for, yeah. for most guys who have functional hands, I just tell them to, for as long as you can, or even take a block of their training and just do your pulling with no straps, truck only. And both hands, palms down. Because what you'll find is a lot of people, if you take away their mixed grip, they're really weak in that position. You know, Mike, wow. that's funny because not being a power lifter, uh, I noticed that I was doing a lot of what I consider heavy rack pulls the last time yeah. I competed. Just because I wanted to thicken my upper back, which, by the way, worked. But yeah. uh, I kept thinking, my grip is so weak. I'm such a wuss because if I put more than you know 405 even, uh, I... I could only do maybe half a dozen reps. I would drop it, but I was doing, you know, a double 
pronated grip. It, mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense. And I started mixing the grip. I'm like, oh, this is a lot easier. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. You know, but of course, yeah, then it, it targets your traps and your rhomboids differently when you start playing with the mixed grips and stuff, I think. but Yeah. The first time I switched over years ago, I had done, you know, pretty much fallen in the way of doing mixed grip for a lot of times. And I think the first time I did both palms down was horrible. Like with the one inch bar was like only 265. I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. My grip is um, not good. And you know what? Hand size has a lot to do with this, too. I don't know um, yeah. how big his hands are, too. But if he's got Eddie Cone hands, like Ed, Ed's got big hands on a, on a short frame, and that's pretty good for him. You know what I mean? So if your hands are bigger, uh, yeah, I've never got that excited about a lot of the grip stuff because my hands are so small. I feel like I just don't have any leverage. I don't know. But. Yeah, and it's also relative too. The one thing I have noticed is that if it it's the weirdest sensation to go up to like a heavy loaded axle, you know, both palms down, it's a smooth bar, two inches, and to not be able to lift it just because you can't hold on to it, it is the it's the weirdest sensation because it feels like someone just took all your strength away. Even though the weight on the bar is something you've deadlifted in that yeah. position before, but just not to be able to hold on to it. And then the reverse is also true, right? So any lifts that you've made that you feel really comfortable with, you know, pretty much every time your grip is very solid, right? So just kind of from a neurology aspect, I think there's a lot to it also. You know, I know not everybody is as interested in the grip stuff, but uh, what are your thoughts about, like when we had Lane on, Lane Norton, he was yeah. talking about, he's such a fan of hook grip. You yeah. know, Can you somehow do that just with your index and thumb? Can you revisit that idea a little bit? Yeah, so hook grip is actually, as you put your hands around the bar, you're actually pulling your index finger, in essence, kind of over your thumb, and you're crushing your thumb into the bar. Um, So if you look at a lot of Olympic weightlifters, that's why their thumbs are taped a lot of times. Um, So a lot of Olympic weightlifters use a hook grip for a lot of stuff just because of positions they have to be in. Um, Oddly enough, if you talk to Lane, he doesn't normally train his deadlift with a hook grip that often. Um, but on competition, he does, and he said he's, you know, other than I think like once, his grip has always been good. Um, if I have people try it, I think it's worth trying. Um, obviously, you know, make sure your rules allow it. Most of them do. But it takes quite a while to build up the tissue on yeah, the thumb and everything. Yeah. And that position is also very specific. Um, yeah, I just don't know a lot of people thinking for powerlifting aspects can get away with it. So it's... I think it's worth trying, but yeah, I, I tried it for a while and God, it just hurt too much. I was a pussy and quit. You know, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm the same way. Fortress doesn't even like that, you know, and Fortress is, you know, he's such this thickly built dude, you know, and it, it's surprising for me to to hear that Lane d- doesn't actually ever train like that because you would think you'd have to yeah. train to build up the tissues like that because like you said, it hurts like hell. Yeah, I mean, maybe he does now. I mean, when I talked to him last time a while ago, he's like, no, I just already, you know, I've done that. And I I think he, because his background is bodybuilding, right, he didn't want to use a mixed grip with super heavy weights because of risk to the bicep and that type of thing. So from that aspect, it makes it makes sense. And he's like, well, my grip was weaker, you know, both hands down. And you're pulling over 700 pounds for a deadlift. So he's like, so I just used a hook grip and it worked. It's like, wow, that, yeah, that's. Yeah, he's got longer <laughs> fingers. It really works for anyone else I know, but. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think long fingers and big hands, you know, those kinds of th- I, I don't know, maybe it's just something the listener can think about, you know, hand size yeah. and all that. Okay, well, now, Phil just sent me a text, and he said he's going to send us a little audio clip, so I don't know, even know what it's about. Oh, nice. 
So we're going to do a, um, a handover of the mic uh, to Phil for a, a mystery segment. <laughs> and then just like last week, we'll go to break right after his segment. And then when we come back, uh, we'll tackle our topic of the day, which again is this quote unquote clean eating spectrum and what, what it means at least to us. Hi, everybody. Here I am again. I'm going to do another uh, Q&A session type thing here. This is Phil Stevens, strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, recovering from hip surgery, getting ready to start my box, boxing training again. Um, I'll let you guys know how that's going. Sorry, I haven't been updating my log there. Going good. Um, they cleared me to start taking ibuprofen again, which was freaking amazing. Um, so basically I'm training upper body three to four days a week. And then doing a bunch of aerodyne work and things like that. Next week, I'm going to start pushing a prowler for the first time. But things are going good. I'm down the lowest I've been in a while, about 248. So about three pounds away from where my coach wants me to box at. So hoping to get cleared to start doing rotational stuff um, here in about three weeks. So And then I'll be able to start that again. In the meantime, my conditioning's probably up higher than it has been a long time just due to the aerodyne work. But... um uh, yeah, it's going good. I mean, I've become like a bench bro. It's like I find myself benching like three times a week, and I'm alternating the intensities and, and volume on that. Lots of rows and, and stuff like that. And massive 10-pound leg extensions and leg curls, and that's kind of uh, bugging me. But, hey, it's it's in the short term, so i got to keep my eyes forward, keep my eyes on the prize, and, you know, tried a few swings this week, and that was out. But uh, from here, it's just it's finding what hurts, what doesn't, and go from there. So I'm hoping that just gently pushing the prowler will be my first step, and then we'll go from there. But um, had a few questions to address. We'll do one or two here. Um, the first one was from Adrian Alvarez that I wanted to address. <sighs> Strength training for hypermobile athletes. I've dealt with this some um, quite a bit. I've had some gymnasts and stuff that came in. But a lot of hypermobile elbows and things like that. And um, to me, the hypermobile athlete is more dangerous than the immobile athlete. Um, immobility is easier to fix and it's easier to deal with safely. I mean, we can just we can take them as far as they can go on a lift. It's harder to train somebody to not go too far on a lift. Like my wife has hypermobile uh, elbows. So... We had to mentally train her to not overextend in like her jerks and things like that. So things you can do is uh, a lot of strength training. Build some mass around that joint. Let's say you have hypermobile elbows where they lock out too far. Some direct bicep work can help because, of course, it's going to tighten that up and, and hopefully pull on that elbow a bit more to stop it from locking out. And then other than that, it's just all proprioception stuff. So it's going to be uh, just teaching you, like people that have uh, their hypermobile and their lumbar and stuff like that. A lot of ladies do this, um, overextending the lumbar. It's teaching them how to set their backs without, you know, over overextension in that area. So um, you'll have to take a, a bit of care because we don't want a loaded joint to, to overextend. Um, you've, you've all seen those... Um, the videos of like leg presses and things where the knee knee extends and uh, 
overextends and then comes back crushing them and breaking both their legs and things like that. We don't want any of that stuff to happen. Um, so it's a lot of it's going to be mental and just consistently training yourself to extend that joint but not overextend that joint. And then aside from that, strength training the opposite side of that joint. Like in an elbow, an elbow overextends when the tricep fully activates and, and pulls that elbow. So let's train the bicep. Um, if we have a knee that overextends, um, when you when you put it in full extension, you know what pulls that leg into flexion? The hamstring. So a lot of dedicated hamstring work to tighten that thing up. Um, backs are a bit harder. I would say a lot of concentrated ab work. Um, maybe even oddly enough, tightening up the hip flexors some. But you know, getting and then other than that's just teaching. I would I would have people with the back issue, lots of planks and loaded holds and things like that, and then just when they're in a squat or anything like that, um, just finding that nice flat back position where the, where the lumbar isn't overextended. So yeah, you're going to need to take your time be, because overextension or hypermobility, as the question was related to, is is a bit more dangerous in my opinion. Um, because it's easy, it's not that hard to, to work on somebody that's immobile. We just do stretches and crap. And, you know, if they can only squat two exactly parallel, that's where we go. And, like, a lot of times I'll set a box or something, and our goal is, okay, a month from now we're going to be an inch lower or whatever. Um, so uh, I think um, dedicated hypertrophy work is a good thing, and then just uh, mental work on mental cues on, on hitting the right positions would be the things that I did first. We had two people then that asked about Highland Games. Um, let me find them here. One was Damian Rhodes and Jeremy. Um, Jeremy's question was, what modifications might you make to the power snatch in training for weight over bar or even throwing in general? And Damian's was along the same lines about how to train for in the gym for Highland Games. Uh, he said, we've had some throwers on there, but PL and bodybuilding get much more talk. So, yeah. Um, I have a few moves I like. Um, for throwers, and that's one of my big plans, is I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to concentrate on Highland Games a bit more after this, this fight. So, um, because it'll keep, I don't, I don't need to be deadlifting 800 pounds, and I, I just don't, I don't want to go right to that. I don't want to go right to that as my goal. So I might stick with Highland Games for a bit um, after this. So, sorry, I had to take a drink of my coffee. Um, but, um, speed, speed kills. Um, nobody cares if you can pick up 800 pounds in Highland Games if you're slow. So, the first thing I do is gear all training towards speed. Um, with the caveat of, let's say, as long as you're not a lightweight thrower, um, if you're a regular class thrower, uh, I would say baseline, you need to be deadlifting 500 pounds. If you're not deadlifting 500 pounds, then let's not worry about speed. Um, you know, I was probably over strong, stronger than a lot of Highland Games athletes um, in my deadlift and things like that, which helped me. But I, I wasn't fast enough, so I had to train speed a lot. So speed pulls, you can simplify things. I mean, I don't think there's any need for you to do full snatches. Power snatches are great. One modification I like is a hip snatch um, to, to learn that hip drive. So what you do is you, you stand up in a hang position with the snatch, and you literally just, instead of dropping the bar down to the top of your knees... You're going to just push the bar back and hips back. Hip bar stays on the hips and then drive it forward. It's going to loop aggressively. 
but what is pushing that bar overhead totally is hip drive forward then and your arms stay locked out i don't want the arms involved at all so it's it's almost like a big heavy kettlebell swing another thing i like for weight over bar jeremy is um loaded swings um i don't know of a kettlebell heavy enough for this like i made a loading pin and what i would do is i'd get on that thing and swing it and you know i think we were doing as heavy as 150 175 pound swings um on the loading pin <coughs> so and we'd just rock back i don't need that thing to go any higher than chest height but i'd get it back behind me like the uh the heavy uh heavy weight for height and uh drive hard out of the bottom and then let off drive hard out of the bottom and it might be sets of fives and tens um but we're looking to move that thing fast i'm looking to get that 150 175 pounds to float float in space um power snatches are great like i said i like my um the variation of the hip snatch uh, forward as well just learning that hip drive and that overextension of reach with the chin push your butt back and reach forward with the chin and then just drive hard um and you know like i said gear everything towards speed instead of doing you know 80 percent on deadlifts maybe you're working a 70 percent and we're looking to drive that thing fast um and squats same thing i, I like pause squats you know the, the load might be 70 percent and you're going to go sit in the bottom one two boom you're exploding up um gear everything towards speed i i like going to uh, once you're strong enough lots of push presses push jerks things like that because i mean it is not the it, it's not the arm that throws the stone far it's the hips so we need those hips in line with the arms what happens is that yeah sure the tricep works it locks out after so we want that explosive hip drive boom and then just a, a fast snappy lockout um the load should not be something you're grinding we want to move up slowly but it's something that you can pop out and uh um we don't need a lot of hypertrophy we just need speed 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 so um same thing even on your bench pressing and stuff everything is done for speed um you might do i mean it depends on the athlete if i have an athlete that just needs to get bigger yeah we'll spend some time there but still speed is what kills so um we're ever increasing the loads that they can move fast i i'm lucky enough that i finally bought a, a machine that measures power output so i can stop the set when it starts to slow down um but you can kind of uh you can kind of measure this yourself i like hearing the, the weight move so if i don't hear a clang of plates it ain't moving fast enough um even on deadlift uh squats everything else i, I want it moving fast enough to where i can make it clink clank at the top um and then other than that, I mean, even sprint work and things like that, people don't think of conditioning for Highland Games, but it's a long freaking day. If you're not in condition, you're going to poop out at the end. So, um, you know, fairly fairly long sessions and lots of work. Other than that, I mean, I don't think, I think most throwers just need to throw more. Like my, I needed no more gym time. I needed a lot more throwing time. <clears throat> so, I mean, there's that. But, yeah, in the gym... I would make everything towards speed, and then other than that, core strength, and rotational core strength is huge. So, um, you know, good mornings I think help back, um, even back extensions and things like that. But then we're talking um, rotational strength, and um, what do we call them? Drawing a blank here. Um, we've got our abdominal wall, and but uh, side bends and things like that. But and then also you can load a bar up. For your rotational strength, let's say, I don't know, 30, 40% of your squat, 
we're going to squat down just a little bit like a little quarter squat torso very upright we're going to turn our hips and our shoulders just like a throwing position for the stone and then drive those weights just a little bit and then you're going to attempt to stop it straight forward turn the other way drive um, offhand work I think is important so as much work as you're doing with your on hand we need to be doing something with the offhand so swings with both hands heavy um, and then other than that man it's just speed 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 look to blow up weights and I think everybody should do this all the time even power lifters um, I train my lifters to kill weights so we're not looking to grind shit out I'm looking to blow it up and you'll see the best throwers in the world they are fast it's much more like Olympic weightlifting so we're looking to throw weights around we're not looking to grind weights and we're looking to slowly move that up um, but like I said any core work you can do and things like that are going to be great I don't think we need to put you in a lot of abdominal flexion meaning like crunches and crap like that but um, loaded planks, loaded carries, um, side bends, things like that, and then you know, just just swinging the implements and learning to drive, doing hip drive, doing casting drills with heavy heavy weights. Um, if you can even get up above the 56 pound, maybe we can get you at 75, 80 pounds, and just doing cast drills. You know, things to make what you're going to do lighter. We don't need to go way overboard on a lot of that stuff. Like, I wouldn't have you do a casting drill with 150 pounds. I think that's a bit excessive. But I do think it works for the uh, the weight over bar. But that's more of a hip hinge hip hinge pattern, and we're, we're strong there, and we should be strong there. But um, And then power snatch and power clean, I think, are good. And jerks are good. I don't think you need to be able to do a full full snatch or a full clean. If you have the ability, go for it. But um, if you don't, I wouldn't may waste like six months trying to get good at it because there is no squat in, in Highland Games as far as, I mean, squat as far as having to reach full extension and then full squat within the fraction of a second. So all Highland Games is about is full extension, you know, from a squatted position, a partially squatted position to full extension. Um, hell, even things like box jumps and things like that. I wouldn't do bounding box jumps. I'm not a fan. You're just going to hurt yourself or like massively loaded but get explosive um, work on short sprints things like that um, short pushes with the sled anything that gets you moving heavyweight fast um, and then yeah, I mentioned it before I'm kind of rambling back and forth here but push presses and blah 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 so um, other than that I mean I think I think the training is about the same I would and then I'd go throw as much as you can um, you know, shoulder shoulder work. I would say also a lot of back work. Most people that have shoulder problems aren't strong enough in their back. And most people that have problems with Highland Games are not strong enough in their back if they get hurt, I mean. So lots of rep work for your back while staying mobile and things like that. So that is as far as I will go today on those things. I'm going to go back up, and I got my baby boy up there waiting for me. We're up there rocking out some jams. I just posted a new song that we made on the iron radio page and i'll be back with you guys in a week or two mom's healing up good baby's uh kicking butt he's already gained a pound or about a half pound so they lose that initial weight he gained that back in like two days and then he's up a pound or a half pound so he's killing it and uh you know i'm still getting my training in when i can and i'll keep you guys updated and thanks for uh being patient with me while i go through this uh hip surgery and 
the birth of my son and everything like that. So um, until next time, please go on, shoot me some questions. I'll do what I can to touch on them. If anybody has the uh, means and ability, please drop me a line. You can come out, drop in my facility anytime you want and train. Um, we're, we're kind of open to the public, meaning drop me a line and you can come in. Um, so, yeah, until next week, cheers. This is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press and protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, Whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Weekly Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. It's Dr. Nelson, and it's Lonnie Lowry, and we have my wife, Kelly, who's on to give some insights, I think, on this whole clean eating uh, spectrum. Now, some people don't like the word clean eating because, of course, that that term, because what does that really mean? Like, what's clean versus not? Or, like, Mike, maybe you can add a few thoughts before we hit record. You said there's there's a certain, like, value judgment in this whole clean eating idea. Yeah, I think it's just the whole thing. I personally don't like the term. I understand what people say when they they mean it. 
because um, I think it implies that, oh, this is a clean food. Oh, this is an unclean food, like you're mm-hmm. never supposed to eat it. And then people have a piece of chocolate cake and feel horrible, you know. So I think it just kind of implies that there's some morality associated with food, you know, that here's right. your, uh, my friend Paul Noble says, here's your naughty and nice list of foods. You know, just eat the ones on the nice list and you'll be fine. Well, but what happens if you go out to dinner or you go to a social event or things like that? Um, so I think it just from the psychological side is just uh, not not my favorite. Yeah. Listeners, if anybody's interested in our um, listener editorial section, Jaya Dixit has been on the show before. She's yeah, a grad she's student. Very good stuff on that. Yeah, sociology uh, sort of expert. She would cringe at that term. But, um, yeah, she offers a really nice little commentary about some of those value judgments uh, when it comes to food. But for our purposes, uh, we've got three categories from – what I call healthy eating, uh, and this is the sort of everyday kind of eating that I think most of our listeners would employ. I know some of the powerlifters are just very against purposely trying to count too many things, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And some of the, some strength guys, they probably even revel in just eating Big Macs and ice cream. And occasionally that's fun, you know. Uh, but so we've got three categories that are increasingly strict or restrictive. So at our loosest category, and again, I'll give some examples of some foods here and and just ask Kelly to toss in her two cents. Uh, But we have the healthy category and then a a stricter category, which might be like, for example, in my household, if we decide, oh, you know, let's drop a couple of pounds of fat, what would we do? So I'll call that the simply clean category. It's a little more restrictive than just general healthy eating, but we'll call it clean eating. And then there's the contest prep category. And I'll, I've only, honestly, I was telling Mike before we hit record, there's maybe only been a half, and a half a dozen times in my life I've descended to this level. It's way too restrictive to be healthy for long. So think about the contest prep as my, maybe being the you know three months uh before you actually compete in bodybuilding, so you're you're desperate to get down to single low single digit body fat if you can, uh, because you're going to be on stage in your underwear in front of a thousand people, <laughs> right? So, so variety I think is our key word for the our loosest category. So in the healthy category, uh, in my household, um, I we almost I almost tend to think, and I think Kelly does too on some level like international eating, like uh, a Mediterranean-type diet. There's a lot of things in a Mediterranean diet that fit this that might not be strict enough for the other categories. Like we'll use olive oil in our cooking, you know, or maybe even splurge and, you know, dip some bread in some olive oil and have a glass of wine, you know, that kind of – that's the kind of stuff I wouldn't do at the at the more strict levels. But, you know, olives, sun-dried tomatoes that are sort of in a marinade – um, artichoke hearts and oil, that kind of stuff. Um, what else do we do? Uh, just like the Asian foods, mixing the meats, the vegetables. Yeah. Uh, rice is in that category. Uh, soba noodles, like buckwheat noodles. You know, there's a lot of that uh, sort of stuff when you think about, um, you know, seafood of all kinds. I think seafood could fit most of these categories, really. But it's sort of uh, – it's a mix, right? There's there's plentiful fats and carbs and, like you were saying, Mike, not really judging. 
in all this stuff. Oatmeal, trail mixes. I'll have high-fiber cereals. On the fatty side, maybe avocados, peanut butter. I don't really worry about this stuff too much. Meats, like, generally we're thinking mostly lean meats, right? Like, Kelly will go get 90% ground beef, 90% lean. Um, like the pork loin, uh, mm. fish, eggs, you know, the the normal. Well, we call it normal. <laughs> but right, <laughs> normal like eggs. Eggland's best eggs. Sometimes they even mega three eggs. There's some pros and cons to that, I guess. But uh, like you know, cost wise, but almost all fruit I think would be in this variety category. We'll try to have snacks. We might have like some Triscuit crackers with some hummus, and and that might panic sort of the gluten, <laughs> you know, free people oh. out there. But um, we, we eat those pea crisps. I actually have those in the Iron Radio those store. Are pretty good, actually. They we are just pretty had good. Some the other week. Yeah, some fiber and some protein and stuff. Uh, or even stuff like if we're going to have a dessert, we might have – again, I'm trying to keep it generally healthy, but some sugar-free pudding. Or like Kelly will make these uh, three, two, one cakes, or I'll put some protein powder and brownies. Uh, I don't Maybe describe three, two, one cakes. I know a lot of listeners probably know what they are, but – Yeah. Um, three, two, one cakes, you mix a package of boxed angel food cake and any flavor regular cake mix that you like. And it's literally three tablespoons of that mix, two tablespoons of water, and one minute in the microwave. And oh. then, yeah, and then we just throw a little bit of protein powder in that. And uh, I've had listeners say, oh, you can ju- just use protein powder, but when I do that, it, it, doesn't, <laughs> come out, it doesn't come out very well, at least not Depends with this. the protein thing. powder you're using. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it probably depends. But really, if you get a whey or a whey casing blend, you can mix it 50-50 with that angel food cake flour that Kelly was just talking about. You know, that way you get a little bit of your sugar fix if you want. It's actually a very small portion size, you know, like she was just describing. I would double that portion size probably and still feel okay. Um, But having said that, Mike, what about you? Like general eating in your household, uh, how do you go about that or how would you define it? Yeah, so I I think for the the healthy area, we're – a huge fan of as much variety as you can. And that's kind of, uh, I don't want to say a constant battle per se, but it's uh, kind of adding and sort of maintaining, I guess you could say. Um, a lot of it depends upon where we're, where we're at in the seasons. So we try to buy most of our beef from, uh, there's a farmer we get from either Iowa or Wisconsin. So we try to get mostly grass-fed beef. Um, you know, the literature is like really back and forth on that. Um, but for us, I just I feel better supporting also the local farmer. You know, we happen to buy the the Highland cattle, which are raised on grass, and we know the guy. And the reality is, when we did the price comparison uh, between that and if we bought the exact same thing at you know just the local grocery store down the road, it wasn't really that much more per se. Um, but you had to buy half a cow at once. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> so you had to buy a fair amount of it at once. Um, but I, what we found is that I really like having that variety already there. And so we'll buy maybe more seafood. So we went up to Alaska a couple of years ago to visit my uncle who lives there. So we got to do some halibut fishing there, which was very fun, and ship back a bunch of fish. Um, and even just stuff like frozen fruit and things of that nature. I found that if we have a lot of the variety on hand, you can kind of open your freezer and go, oh, do we want steak tonight or hamburger or you know, maybe a liver or something like that? 
Um, so you have the variety already kind of there. And then in the summer, we try to go to the farmer's market a little bit more because they'll have more uh, seasonal vegetables and different things like that. It's usually more inexpensive also. It's a little bit higher quality. Um, but we don't really necessarily would, I guess, demonize other foods. You know, For example, last night, both of us were just so ridiculously tired, we ended up ordering pizza from Domino's. <laughs> you yeah, know, So it's yeah. not like you're... You're sitting around every night having your your perfect, you know, grass-fed steak with the organic raised vegetables that were raised by the farmer down the road. And, you know, I think all that is good. I think if you can move that direction, you're probably going to be better. But the flip side is if, if you can't do that or, you know, once in a while you want something else, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world either. So Yeah, I've actually had some comments. Like I'd post something that I was making at home on Twitter. I'm like, oh, that looks delicious. I'm going to post that. And maybe it was some meatballs that I was making or – and, you know, and occasionally yeah. you'll get a comment from someone like, oh, yeah, well, that's just because of subsidies or that, you know, there's still yeah. gluten in there. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like like you were saying, it's almost from that – variety perspective if you're so inflexible you know to use sort of your kind of perspective that mm-hmm. you can't go eat a pizza i'm not sure that's psychologically or even physically healthy you should be able to no. handle the insult of domino's pizza <laughs> you know what I yeah mean? and i you know my wife avoids gluten just because it doesn't work well with her at all oh, so right, domino's right. even has gluten-free pizza now you know gluten doesn't bother me so it's you know i think you can still individualize it on those particular things and and even with clients i always ask them i said it's no one food is good or bad just like we're going to go through here depending upon where you're at and what your goals are you know eating dominoes every night probably not going to be the best but you know once in a while probably not a big deal if you're trying to step on stage or you've got a weight class you have to meet or something that's coming up very close yeah, eating a pizza from Domino's is probably not going to help you towards that goal. That doesn't mean that that food is inherently bad. just means that for your goal and where you're at relation to that, it's probably not your best option at that point. I almost wish Fortress is on. You know, his uh, he has quite the proclivity for grease wheels. You know, oh, yeah. Him, you know, he loves that <laughs> stuff. And again, his goal, a lot of this stuff with this spectrum getting stricter and stricter is, you're right, it's goal-oriented, right? So... Let me just put this to Kelly then. So if we go beyond that, let's say you and I wanted to just lean down a little bit. There's not going to be any kind of contest for me. And listeners should know that Kelly doesn't compete in fitness events or anything like that. I think it helps keep our home sane. But uh, (laughs) what about the cleaner eating? Like, I don't know, try to maybe try to categorize how, how we do that. Well, first off, I don't do any of those things, you know, compete or anything like that because I like food. And food is good. Yes, food is good. <laughs> but our cleanup is more lower carb, uh, salads, stir fry. It really focuses on um, the lean meats and the vegetables. Yeah, as far as recipes go, you know, I think those are two just they're just two obvious ways maybe to focus. I mean. The th- it's usually the the problem is not in the theory; it's the practice, right? I think if everybody in America started eating lean protein sources and and fibrous vegetables, you'd see a huge amount of our our health burden go away. You know, people would lose weight, their blood pressure would come down, their blood sugar would start to normalize. So salads are one way we do that. Uh, maybe just to show sort of us the process of getting stricter, instead of eating ninety percent 
beef, maybe we'd be getting 93 or 96 percent, you know, some some of the leanest ground beef or round steak. You know, maybe we're using Pam instead of olive oil in the pans. Uh, maybe it's steel cut oats instead of just any oats. Like sometimes I'll, out of convenience, I'll just have some uh, even instant oats. You know, they've got some decent ones with protein mixed in them now. And I don't just mean soy protein, but, you know, whey. Um, salads, you could build almost anything, you know, vegetable-wise. Iceberg or romaine lettuce. I mean, I know iceberg lettuce doesn't have a lot of nutritional value, but it's something to eat. You know, Phil's always talking about you got to have a vehicle to get the good stuff into your mouth. And so stuff like whole grain or extra fiber tortillas or that iceberg lettuce these are things that inherently i'm not really excited about but they help you get the uh some of the more nutritious content into your mouth you know red bell peppers and all kinds of beans we'll put in salads you know like garbanzo beans and that sort of stuff or onions um, broccoli cauliflower you could put so many things in some of these things we'll use low fat dressings instead of full fat dressings again just with the idea of getting a little stricter you know, maybe we're using uh, lower fat dairy, uh, whereas on the variety list, I might have some mozzarella or one of the naturally leaner cheeses. We're probably just going with purposely low fat cheese, you know, and that kind of stuff. Because I agree with what Kelly said, it's lower carb, but we're also sort of getting more fat conscious. So maybe instead of the um, Eggland's Best Eggs or one of those omega-3 type eggs, maybe it's just egg beaters, you know, uh, We'll play around with protein shake recipes. We'll start throwing fiber shore, Benefiber, you know, into different things. Um, instead of having stuff like sugar-free pudding or 3-2-1 cakes, maybe we just have sugar-free jello. And I know some people really hate that, but, you know, as you start to get stricter, you've got to think think of things to actually eat while you're cutting out most of the carbs and, and a good portion of the fat as well. You know, now, I don't know how you do it, Mike, but if, if you try to get leaner, what is it that you do? Do you do anything differently? Do you change portion sizes? Are the foods different? Yeah. So, so what I found is after I finished my PhD, I was uh, probably at my heaviest weight. And I think I talked about before, it's like, wow, I'm actually kind of fat. <laughs> and my, my lifts weren't going up to match that, right? So it's like, no, I'm just getting fatter. Um, so what I found is it works best for me is that I have to be a little bit more lack of a better word, consistent and compliant. So I'll actually start logging stuff again. So the first thing I'll do then is I'll take, okay, three days attempting to eat the same thing, even though I know I probably don't, and then just kind of look at that and then go, oh, okay. So that's probably a little bit higher than, you know, what I found that I should be at. And the other thing for me is that having a little bit more of a plan and a structure helps a lot instead of being kind of, oh, yeah, we're, you know, out here and I'll just grab this or that. Uh, having to be a little bit more structured. So going back to usually having, you know, most of the meals kind of semi-prepared the night before, you have a pretty good template of, you know, what you're going to eat, you know, usually less processed food. So, you know, less Pop-Tarts and cakes and that kind of stuff. Not that I ever get to the point where usually that that's entirely off limits, but I find similar to what you did if, you know, I eat more vegetables, you know, more meat, things of that nature first, then I'm just less likely to eat those other things. So I find that that, for me, and usually for a lot of my clients, works better because it's, it's the catch-22 if you tell them, okay, now you can never have XYZ food. They tend to kind of overthink on that, right? But you yeah. tell them, okay, now you're going to eat more protein. 
going to eat more fiber, you're going to eat more vegetables, you're going to try to eat a wider variety of vegetables, you know, some fruit, you're going to have most of it, you know, prepared the day before. So you know, like your, you know, three to four meals or five meals for the day are going to be this. Um, yeah, I find just doing those small things helps quite a bit. And then after I do that for a while, I will actually start adding in a period of a fasting period. So I usually go back up to around one day a week, you know, 19 to 24 hours where I won't eat anything that has calories. Um, and that usually tends to work actually really well. Um, it's easy to do and, you know, has some benefits of upregulating uh, fatty acid use and things of that nature too. Has your eating evolved since earlier times? Like, I want Lonnie to answer this too, because like even when we first met, I mean, his diet was much different than it is now. Oh, yeah. I mean, mine is, I mean, if I go back, I mean, I spent probably 28-ish years and I, where I did not eat any red meat. Which is kind of funny because anyone who follows me on Facebook is like, but you post pictures of steak like all the time. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, it, it was weird because it, it never interests me. Like people are like, but wasn't it hard not to eat red meat? And it wasn't, it was just something I had no interest in. So it wasn't hard to do at all. Um, but over time, I actually was purposely trying to increase the amount of variety. So I, I wanted to about three years ago just get to the point where I could eat red meat and you know not be sick and it wouldn't bother me or anything like that and in that process i found wow this actually now is pretty tasty where several years before it tasted horrible um so i think that's probably a big difference and so that allowed me to eat more in different types of protein and even like when we were in japan i used to be probably the probably the world's pickiest eater especially when i was a kid probably grew up on french toast and peanut butter sandwiches and that was about it yeah i saw that big sushi platter yeah, yeah. So over the past, especially probably five years, you know, because I'm like, well, if I'm the one promoting metabolic flexibility and variety and all this stuff is good, then I should probably do it myself. <laughs> um, so just trying to increase the amount of variety in my diet. And what I found is over time, your tastes actually change, you know, so I like more bitter things. I like things that have more almost gelatinous texture now I can tolerate where, you know, three or four years ago, I thought that was just the most hideous thing ever. Um, so I think that's probably been the biggest change. And then the second thing has been trying to have periods of time where I'm more focused on it and less focused on nutrition. As for a while, I tried to be you know, hyper-focused on training and, and nutrition and finish the PhD and do these two other jobs and stay married and you know, all these things. And at some point, it, it, you just you, you can't do all of it, right? So, okay, so what is a priority? Okay, I want to finish my degree. Okay, if I add 10 pounds during the last year, it's not that big of a deal. I know what to do to lose it. It's not going to be the end of the world type thing. You know, so trying to, I think, prioritize different areas and what your goals are and then being okay with the other things at that time period, knowing that, okay, once this thing finishes, okay, now I can focus on that. I know what to do. You know, I have sort of the, the control over it. So I'll just put those things in place and be okay instead of trying to burn yourself into the ground by trying to do everything all at the same time. Right. You know, if I if I could use a word that describes the evolution that I've gone through, probably uh, it's been toward an enjoyment of food. You know, when I was um, probably early teens, when I was discovering bodybuilding back in the early 80s, um, 
I wouldn't eat anything with more than three grams of fat or 200 milligrams of sodium. I'm not kidding. Oh, wow. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, imagine how restrictive that diet is. And um, now I really enjoy food. You know, I mean, like right now, for example, I'm waiting on some surgical repairs and stuff. So I'm going to enjoy food. Is it healthy? Yes. Am I trying to stay active? As best as I can. But there's a difference, I think, at different stages in your career. You know, having a very Spartan super restrictive diet because you want to be shredded and you know when i was in my 20s i was really really lean um but then i don't know i maybe you become comfortable carrying a little bit more body fat i bet some of our listeners can identify with that because especially if it's going to help you build muscle or meet other goals you know but let me put this one to kelly so before you met me uh how did you eat you know what I mean? And then when you were brought into someone who is interested in physique and healthy eating and all that sort of stuff, how did things evolve for you? Well, um, we ate traditional stuff. You know, everything was meat and potatoes, you know, a lot of fried. Um, you know, there was there was no calorie counting, you know, but we also did a lot of fresh veg fresh fruit. And then as I got older, uh, hereditary health issues came into play. Um, some diabetic issues, high cholesterol. So I had to change up what I was eating. So fried foods limited or just changed how I prepared it. And, and, and then when I met Lonnie, Pretty much the same, keeping um, things very lean, probably more controlled when we first met, trying to impress, you know. I, you know, I don't think it was so much um, super low carb when we first met. I think, if anything, we've evolved to more lower carb and more moderate on the fat side of things. Does that sound fair? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. We don't do a lot of bread and pasta, actually, um, because I find that not just because we're afraid of carbs, but Kelly and I are middle-aged, right? And your glucose tolerance sort of suffers a little. I can't eat the pound of pasta like I used to, you know. Uh, like you said, with some of the blood sugar control issues and some of those sorts of things, you, you know what I mean? I mean, what do you eat? And we just kind of got away from uh, quite as many carbs. Let, let's go to the last category, though, because we're running out of time. And that's contest prep. And let me just add a few things. First of all, this I would define this as highly restricted, highly quantified. You know, you're counting grams of stuff. I wouldn't count calories as much some, but calories take care of themselves when you're looking at your macros, you know, your protein, carbon, fat. But uh, literally, as a contest prep diet proceeds, I would remove things that bodybuilders would tell me you might want to avoid that because it might make you look smooth stuff that you're almost <laughs> not going to see in a textbook you know but n n eventually moving away from no dairy except for some maybe whey protein powder or something like that no wheat products almost no fruit you know it's almost entirely chicken and fibrous vegetables so if i were to l give you a list of foods like and again this is literally wash rinse repeat right chicken breast probably pan seared with ham you know some type of cooking spray yams uh oat bran you know so instead of just oatmeal just oat bran uh for my carbs 
for the fibrous veg stuff like green beans, asparagus, broccoli. Um, so in the morning, it's sort of egg whites with any one of these vegetables. And in the afternoon, it's chicken breast with any one of these vegetables. You know, and it's just water to drink. You know, it becomes incredibly Spartan. And it's just, like I said, it's just, then just repeat all that. So uh, that's the kind of stuff is way too restrictive, like I said, to be a healthy diet. There's there's not enough variety to even get your um, micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, um, phytochemicals, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but literally in the last month, uh, six weeks before a show, it's literally that every day. And some people can do that and some people can't. Uh, I don't know, at least in my experience. Mike, have you ever gone crazy uh, restrictive like that? No, I haven't personally. Um, I mean, I work with some uh, physique competitors. And and with them, I mean, most of the ones I work with are, are pretty knowledgeable about what they're doing with nutrition. Um, but even then, it's it, a lot of it, I think, comes down to their psychology. There's some that are so programmed to... Okay, tilapia and broccoli, and this is all I can eat. And so but beforehand, before they even get to that part of the show, I try to hopefully change their mindset a little bit about that. But a lot of it, I think, is just the outside stress and everything else they have going on in their life, too. You know, because you're putting a lot of time into doing cardio and training and, you know, all your food prep and all that kind of stuff. And some people can only handle just that sort of, you throw a job on top of that, they need sort of that consistency it's just easier for them um, but if I can I do like to incorporate as much variety as I can so even okay this week you had spinach maybe we'll exchange that for you know kale maybe you know lettuce the next week or you know blueberries strawberries raspberries blackberries you know things that are very similar in terms of you know calories so they don't have to try to calculate anything too different but trying as hard as I can to get some micronutrition in there um, anecdotally, they seem to do a little bit better performance-wise with that, but there's not a lot of data that supports that. Um, I, in the back of my head, I'm just thinking I'm I'm trying to do the things to keep them as healthy as possible, knowing that what they're doing in the short term isn't really that healthy. <laughs> you yeah, know, so yeah. and I think just by having some variety seems to help a little bit. But again, you you know have a lot of people that they can only handle so much of that too. You know, there's only so many decisions you can make at the end of the day, and for a lot of people, especially when they get that close, you know, having the exact same thing again is just sort of almost a necessary evil for a lot of people. Yeah, Kelly, let me ask you one last thing because we're just about out of time. But the times that I have descended into that contest prep, that strictest level on this healthy eating spectrum. I can't even call it healthy eating, you know, uh, clean eating, whatever you want to call it, spectrum. Um, how have you dealt with that? I mean, you don't exactly join in. No, I usually run for the hills. Cause <laughs> <laughs> run away. Yes, because grouchiness comes into play too, you know. But it, it, it really was kind of difficult because you don't want to eat stuff like pizza in front of somebody who's yeah. trying to eat clean for... A competition you know so it, it it's just weird yeah it's it, sort of the social contract in a way that you know it's like you're you're agreeing to help me do this and i'm not expecting you to do it either uh, dorian yates said something years ago which was um 
really struck me. He said, why would I get completely explosive angry with my wife? Uh, I'll just eat the cake. I could just sit down and eat the cake. I'm doing this to myself. So how can I possibly blame her? You know, and of course, the, the kids are involved in that sort of stuff. So in a lot of ways, you would just you'd have the regular healthy family meals and then I would just make my stuff separately, you know. Or even sometimes we would have similar to what Lonnie would eat, you know, like the chicken and sweet potatoes, but we would have something extra, some kind of uh, flavorful veg mix or, you know, just something to make it more family-oriented. Yeah. All right, well... uh, that's the idea, and like I said, um, I just thought it'd be nice to have some spousal input on some of this stuff too, you know, because again, um, the healthy variety level of all this, and Mike, I know you agree with that too, I mean, that level of variety, if you could boil down all of nutrition to one word, I've told students this for years, it's variety, right? Because then you're mm-hmm. not getting too much of any one thing, so you're not going to overdose on any particular nutrient or pesticide or whatever and then you're also getting such a variety of the micronutrition even different berries have different phytochemicals within them you know so the word variety is one of the most powerful terms uh, that you can do and again you're removing variety as you move down this clean eating spectrum you know uh and that's why it's target date i think what's unique about physique competitors both the men and the women is you're trying to get your body fat temporarily and artificially depressed it's almost like yo-yo dieting you know and i don't want to bring up issues of like all the metabolic damage quote unquote and all that sort of stuff um because it's actually debatable i think in a lot of ways uh what a yo-yo up and down like that does if you could do it as part of a you know a physically fit conscious kind of lifestyle i mean there are stupid ways to cut your calories too far and whatnot um but anyway just some examples yeah, and for a variety tip that I give clients too, although it sounds pretty woo-woo, is that I'm like, just go to the grocery store. You can only walk around the outside part of the grocery store and just pick out one to two things that you haven't eaten in the past year. I don't care what they are. I, it doesn't matter to me. Just add something new and different. And they're like, oh. And it's amazing how for some people that's actually really, really hard. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, or if you really want to push them, you can say, okay, you can eat whatever you want for this next week, but you can't repeat a single meal. And that's actually really, really hard to do. I mean, if you force, you know, kind of that much variety too. So, yeah, yeah. that's an extreme, but yeah, just yeah, adding a little bit helps. The psychological tweak there is just, yeah, I've heard the average person eats like 15 different foods in a cyclical yeah. manner, you know, and I don't know. Okay, well, we are over time so thanks everybody for listening i thought that was sort of a fun conversation just talk about food a little bit next week phil will be back i'm sure and we've got some guests uh lined up we're not just gonna you know we've done a lot of conference stuff where we've been on site and you know we've had some fun new people come on at conferences and that sort of thing uh but no like uh strong man or power lifter or even professor guests and that sort of thing so we're gonna have some guests coming up too awesome thanks guys
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, Knee sleeves, wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.